Welcome to Season 2 of Insurgency Unmasked. Join us as we explore the hidden stories and complexities of the Ukrainian conflict and listen in as we deconstruct the war in Ukraine step by step, expert by expert. So welcome to another episode of Insurgency Unmasked with the modern insurgent. Today, we're joined by Bianca Bridger. How are you, Bianca? I am good. How are you, Joey? Fantastic. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. So today, we're going to be breaking down the wonderful and chaotic world of the Wagner PMC group and the ever-evolving story that is the article you've been writing on them for us. Yeah, man. <laughs> they are they are an interesting group. Very hectic. Very hard to keep track of <laughs> what they're doing and where they are. But yeah, it's simmered down a little bit in recent weeks. So <laughs> quite quite dramatically and suddenly. Yeah, yeah. And what I find super super interesting is. You know, there was this big thing. It's like, yep, Prigozhin's dead. Then it's like, who did it? Everyone kind of knows who did it, but it's, n- it's never going to come out, likely. And everyone's just accepted it. Everyone's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, like, he's just dead. We're not going to delve too far into it. But it's, I find that, like, so crazy. And Putin didn't even go to his memorial, um, which is just, like, mad shade. But <laughs> super interesting. Um, so... To kick off, how did you start becoming a writer? Where was this desire? Actually, it started way back when I think I've always been interested in like kind of more worldly topics. I guess obviously I grew up in New Zealand um, and were very isolated from every everything basically. Um, and my parents were homicide detectives in South Africa and our dinner table conversations were always interesting. They would always be like, do you know what's happening in Sierra Leone? Like telling us all these crazy things. And I just found it interesting as a kid. Um, and I studied political science at university. In my second year, I got an internship for Polyscope. It was like this political reporting thing that was based out of Columbia University in the U.S., and it was just like, I think two college guys who had started this wee like Instagram news company. Um, and I was just posting for them and I really enjoyed it. It was so fun. I learned a lot. And then, yeah, I just continued on my little journey, linked up with Modern Insurgent and here I am. Wonderful little journey. Yeah. Um, and then Wagner, how did you first <laughs> hear about them? I think I actually saw their names or like the name of Wagner, Wagner, um, floating around on telegram channels back when I wasn't really, I don't think I was writing for Modern Insurgent yet, but I did. Yeah. See their names. And I always used to be like, what is that? Who are they? Um, and it was only when I really got to Modern Insurgent and obviously I got more interested in insurgent groups that I was, yeah, quite interested in how they operate, what they do, why they do what they do. And it's, yeah, it's crazy, like, the amount of information behind it. Um, and it's so tangled as well. Like, there's obviously always going to be conflicting narratives. Um, and that's what I think is the most interesting interesting thing. There's never one, obviously, there's some true facts, but everything else is, is up for a little bit of debate, which is always quite nice. And I think the, the PMC world in general is chaotic enough and then when you add mm-hmm. kind of the 
the Russian tomfoolery that comes with Wagner. It just takes it to another level. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, it's super crazy. Like, um, I didn't know much about PMCs or PSCs before I started looking into Wagner and stuff, but um, I did, which is also quite interesting. Um, the model of Wagner is based off uh, the model of executive outcomes, which was a South African um, like private military company quite like up and about back in the day. And, and it makes a lot of sense in hindsight now that the models are similar because in 2010, I'm pretty sure, Eben Barlow, I'm pretty sure is the name, the founder of executive outcomes was invited to the St. Petersburg Forum um, to speak to the general like general staff members of Russia about private military companies. So it makes a lot of sense, although Wagner was only founded in like 2014, like a couple of years later, it still makes a lot of sense um, just like what their operational objectives are and how executive outcomes and Wagner, the part of they were executive outcomes is like there's a holding company that also deals with mining companies that are kind of like off branches of it. So it's not just like we are a military company and we only focus on shooting people they there's like a whole entangled web of like different branches different things they do like different specialists it's yeah it's really um complex which is yeah i mean a feat in itself to be honest a whole lot of shadowy shit yeah exactly it is there's so much behind the scenes that i feel like people will never Either it'll never come out or it'll be one of those things that comes out like 50 years later and then no one cares about it, um, which always sucks. But I guess it adds to the allure of like why people find private military companies so interesting. It's like they really are like a different species compared to the rest of the world. They can kind of do what they want. Um, even like Western ones, they'll commit some of the most heinous war crimes you can imagine and just change mm -hmm. the name of the company and just go back yeah. to doing it again and again and again exactly blackwater i'm pretty sure is now academy um but that's also the interesting thing obviously if you look at like geopolitics and like the narrative between like east and west and that's why wagner is so i don't know why they can insert themselves or why they could insert themselves so strongly into africa because they play on that narrative that why do you allow the West to do this? Like, we're your friend. We're trying to help your government get away from the, the claws of the West. But in, it has some truth to it. Like, these Western nations will go and demonize other countries for the actions they're doing in active conflict zones, or they'll demonize, like, you know, the methods used in, like, tackling an insurgency. But when you look at their own actions, they're very quick to be like, no, we stick to international law. You know, we're, we're the good guys. It's It's kind of ridiculous. But, I mean, that's politics for you um but no, it's always interesting literally just france in west africa right now <laughs> yeah yep, exactly and that's the thing like i see a lot of people um being like why would they you know try and kick france out of da -da -da? and it's like well why is france in there in the first place they always try and dance around that subject it's like why why are they there but it always, you know, always comes back to resources <laughs> Exactly. But Wagner's exactly the same. Like Wagner, that's their kind of business model for Africa, um, is to like extract the resources of those nations and in turn provide security. And But um, as a result of that, although their main goal is to extract these resources, sometimes like in Mozambique and like in Mali, they're hired to like uh, count 
do counterinsurgency operations against jihadists and stuff. And on the side, they'll be brutally attack the civilian populations of those countries, which, although I'm not saying, you know, like neocolonialism is good, it's not like the French government forces in those countries are going to be doing the same thing. Um, so, yeah, it's a tricky one. And I think that's the, that is like the tight tightrope most West African nations are walking at the moment. It's like neocolonialism, you know, PMCs. It's a tricky one, especially when you've got a lot of things that other countries want. And especially when you've got then your own insurgencies in your country as well. So yeah, big, exactly. So Wagner, how did it start? Let's go okay. right to the beginning. Okay, right to the beginning. In during the Iraq War, there was this kind of like a Russian security company called Anti Terror Oral, which was basically assigned um, or Russian companies who were operating in Iraq asked this company, Anti-Terror Oral, to kind of guard their assets um, during the war. And then they were also protecting, like, port facilities. They were, you know, doing a whole bunch of stuff for Russian businesses in Iraq. And then from this, there was the Moran Security Group, which was tasked by the Bashar al-Assad government in Syria to fight against the Islamic State um, and to, you know, do their thing over there. And that was pretty successful. They, you know, people hear a lot of things about like Wagner's activities in Syria. There's, yeah, so Moran Security Group is fighting against the Islamic State in Syria. And then after the Syrian contract, Moran Security Group goes to Hong Kong and they create this company called the Slavonic Corps. And the Slavonic Corps is fighting in Syria. And this is a super unfortunate thing and kind of why. So the Slavonic Corps, like Kurdish forces in Deir al-Zor um, at the Konoko gas plant. And because they were US-backed forces, um, heaps of US airstrike just basically wiped out that entire unit. And so they went back to Russia and basically in a bit of disgrace and the Slavonic Corps was dissolved. And then in 2014, Dmitry Utkin, who was a part of the Slavonic Corps unit, um, obviously with everything going on in Eastern Ukraine and like Donetsk and Luhansk, there was, you know, partisan behavior there. Um, they move in and he creates Wagner Group. And the interesting thing about Wagner coming in like that time, if you look at how Wagner is used today in the current war in Ukraine, it's completely different to how they began when they first entered Eastern Ukraine. They were kind of used as a smokescreen for more like Russian security forces. They were like moving and slowly doing their work, doing reconnaissance, trying to move in forces. Um, and Wagner Group was basically just like their smoke screen because they couldn't be like, this is a member of the Russian armed forces. They were like, this is some person who is somehow related to Russia. We don't know what they're doing there. Um, and yeah, so in Donetsk and Luhansk, they also took part in like a fair few big like attacks during 2014 2015 like Debeltsev and Luhansk airport um they also took out like a Ukraine military aircraft so they were pretty like at that time already even though they were kind of like still a seed PMC they were pretty pretty heavily armed so how did the Wagner group get involved in Ukraine specifically then okay so this is during um during all that, like, uh, the Eastern Ukraine, like, Luhansk, Donetsk kind of um, separatist movements, um, they first started off, like I said, um, with reconnaissance. So they basically, a few, like, 1,500 
um, this is like all speculative, obviously this could never really be proven, but this is what the SS SBU says. Um, they reckon like 1,500 Wagner um, people moved in and were just basically spying on the general populace and trying to find ways that they could further infiltrate like Donetsk and Luangst, right? Um, and then obviously when that conflict, the separatist conflict started heating up, they then jumped into like actual combat assaults um and they reckon like 60 or 70 wagner troops were you know deployed in eastern ukraine at this time like i said they shot down like a ukrainian military aircraft um around Dine uh, around luansk airport um and what is really interesting is so the luansk republic which obviously became a republic later after the elections still never um this word for it, like gave credit for that aircraft being shot down to Wagner. They were like, no, it was our separatist people that did it. And that's still a problem that obviously with the war in the current war in Ukraine that we see now is, um, you know, Wagner would make a big assault, make a big game, and the Russian military would be like, this was the Russian military. And this is obviously the reason why Prigozhin and like the Russian military elites fought a lot because they felt as though, you know, the rewards were not being given to them. Um, but then another interesting thing, this is still like early on in the separatist kind of conflict in, um, Eastern Ukraine, they then around like 2015, they became like the hitman of Russia. So obviously, um, the separatist conflict had kind of gone on and Russia had moved in their type of people to like make their kind of like little satellite republics and Wagner is, um, like credited to be, the people who started taking out like a bunch of uh people in like the Donetsk Republic and the um Luansk Republic taking out like low-level government leaders in those like sham republics because they were becoming too like ideologically different from the um kind of vision that Moscow had for those regions so they were kind of like the hitmen at that time and just like took out a bunch of people um I don't know so there was the Alexander Bedinov his name was um, his nickname is Batman. He died. He was taken out along with six other people in 2015 um, because these type of leaders were real into that like Novorossiya kind of political ideology um, mm -hmm. and that like Moscow Spring kind of, you know, uppity, we're doing a little bit of a different foreign policy kind of vibe. Putin didn't like that, so they died. Um, another one got blown up in a car bomb. It was the Cossack Regiment Commander. Um, his name was Pavel Dremov. Dremov? Um, also 2015 um, and this is all attributed to Wagner obviously it's never probably been proven but um, I mean it's I believe it but yeah and then obviously with the 2022 um, war in Ukraine it's interesting or at least to me I find it quite interesting is Russia didn't have enough boots on the ground because they obviously thought that, you know, they had to take Kiev in such a short span of time. Um, and so they had to kind of revert to Wagner Group because they couldn't like mass mobilize at that time. They had to move in people who, you know, were pretty mobile in the first place and were keen, like um, quite used to going into um, like active war zones quite quickly and stuff. But they obviously didn't take into account, you know, that Ukrainian nationalist like um, kind of spirit. And I it is in my opinion that Wagner got a little bit stuck in the quagmire in the same in the same space that 
the Russian military did. They weren't actually meant to be in there as long as they were, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think that's a good piece of analysis, to be honest. They definitely ended up having the exact same issues in the end. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that's a, another big reason why, obviously, everything has played out how it has, because um, when, when Wagner was first in there, they were highly trained, you know, they had a lot of specialties. And then as the war kind of grinded on, Russia needed more manpower. They allowed Wagner to recruit out of prisons. Um, and then this is where, like, that famous, uh, like, human, human wave assaults um, kind of strategy comes from, where it's um, basically... They take these Russian recruits, even more highly trained Wagner recruits, and they basically send wave after wave of um, infantry units to try and like overwhelm a Ukrainian position. But because Wagner has such like a strict internal like disciplinary structure, um, if someone is wounded, if someone, you know, if something's not really working in the, in the assault, they will still continue sending wave after wave of people. It's kind of like in World War One where they blow the whistle and like people are just going off the top and they're getting mowed down. They just don't care. Um, but that's also why Wagner is like so different to, you know, a normal kind of like military unit is normally if you're getting mowed down, you're going to stop, you're going to help your friends. Um, you're going to tend to the wounded. But um, in a few cases, I think in a few like journalist articles I've read that it is in their internal disciplinary structure that if you do stop the assault to help a wounded you yourself can be shot on site or like tortured afterwards um so that keeps a lot of people you know Wagner members in I guess almost a sort of fear from straying from the norm because you need to be um told by a higher up commander that the assault has ended before you can you know do anything else which is crazy it is it is a hectic way to live I can imagine it's anxiety inducing. In oh, God, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's why it does take a certain type of person in the first place to join like a private military company. And so obviously that's why, especially the old private military companies like Executive Outcomes, Wagner in the beginning were so like revered because they were highly trained people you know, they went in there, they like fuck shit up. I don't know if I can say that. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, but they, they did their thing. <laughs> they did their thing. Um, and then they left. But obviously with the war in Ukraine now, it's such a quagmire that they had to go then um, recruit from prisons. Obviously the quality of the men goes down. The kind of camaraderie that you would have in like a smaller tight-knit group gets like worn down. Um, and then the whole thing starts to crumble, as we've seen in recent weeks. Um, but also there's a whole different range of factors, outside external factors, which also influence it. Um, but obviously you need those those base levels, foundations to be strong, which were very much degraded throughout this war. Hmm. And I know we've touched on it slightly already, but how or what kind of things can a PMC like Wagner do? on the ground in a conflict that your traditional state actor can't okay so what's really interesting about this and why the why private mercenary groups are so useful in certain situations is out of 191 member states of the un 
only 46 countries have signed this thing called the UN Mercenary Convention. And it's like, obviously, the Geneva Convention touches on mercenarism, mercenarism. Um, but basically, when you are a mercenary, you are not seen as an actual combatant in war. You don't have prisoner of war like uh, perks. So say you're a mercenary and you're fighting and whatever, and you know, the other people catch you, they're just going to shoot you because you're not an actual combatant under, like, international, especially for the people, the civilians of the countries um, in which Wagner are operating, is they are basically not subject to any law, in, like, if you actually look at it, because their home country, obviously that's how they kind of smokescreened it at the start. They weren't really connected to Russia, but they somehow they can kind of hide behind that, but no border. Um, here's a good example. Porter like, goes out somewhere super publicly and does something super, super messed up um, that cannot be denied by the United States. It's like gone too much over social media. The United States, because they, you know, champion themselves as the protector of democracy, yada, 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 they will be forced to do something. And obviously they probably won't go to jail, but they'd have to do something in some form of discipline um, to those members who were like seen by the world doing something bad. But obviously Russia and Wagner, it's a whole different ball game. Um, these people really aren't subject to any laws aside from their like internal hierarchical disciplinary system um and you know kind of the the wishes of the elites but it, it's yeah it's a very interesting way in which they operate um and that's why i think it's so difficult as well um for other countries i think the us has recently put i think the department of treasury put sanctions on wagner um but obviously what is that really going to do in the grand scheme of things the Modern Insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash moderninsurgent. Thank you very much. So what are some of the challenges that journalists and researchers like yourself face when trying to uncover the activities of Wagner in Ukraine? I think... Mainly, this is also like not even just in Ukraine, but in general with Wagner, because that's so well, they were so hidden and so um, intensely intertwined with like the Russian state security forces. That I think, in total, now these like 17 journalists and media workers that have died in Ukraine. Um, and that's not saying like Wagner's killed them all, but just it's an active war zone, right? It's a dangerous place to go and try and uncover stuff. Um, and a lot of times if you go, I think as a journalist or a media worker, if you're going into Ukraine and say you're going into an area that was occupied and is no longer occupied, is actually having to try and find like a civilian or someone who wants to talk to you um, and is willing to, even though whatever they've gone through is extremely traumatic, right? Um, and, you know, there is that fear of reprisal, even say, we don't know if it's an unfounded fear, but Wagner's occupied your city or your village for like a month. Um, you've seen the kind of brutality that they do, you know, that uh, Wagner's been implicated in the Buku massacre um, that occurred at like the start of the war. You know, uh, I think it was like 49 people, um, 49 bodies were found hand tied behind their backs, like signs of torture. Um, I think that's a really big, 
you know, blockage in uh, reaching people who are willing to kind of step up and talk about either what they've experienced or what they've seen. Um, And even Wagner in general, in like 2018, three journalists were killed in the Central African Republic for trying to report on, um, I think they were trying to record the Lobai um, mining mining area there and they were killed in their car they said like random assailants came and like shot them took all of their um took all of their equipment the only person kept alive was the driver who wasn't a journalist which kind of points to something um and then again like last week I'm pretty sure a journalist for Al Jazeera got beaten up by a Russian national in St Petersburg for trying to report outside of the Wagner headquarters of St Petersburg um, and then again in 2008, someone trying to report on Wagner Syria got he was a journalist pushed out of I think his fifth floor like window on a fifth floor um, apartment building. Um, so it is just it's a one. And I think in April of this year, a Wall Street Journal journalist who was not reporting on Wagner specifically, but he was in Russia. He was trying to look at a tank manufacturing company. Um, and speak to civilians who were living around there. Also spoke to a different um, like mili- Russian military blogger, was kind of pushing the boundaries, kind of mentioning Wagner. He was detained um, and charged with, I think, being a mercenary or something. And it's quite interesting because um, I know we've had Aiden Aslan on Modern Insurgent as well. He was charged, well, he tried to be charged by Russia for being a mercenary. And that also brings up the problem with kind of this uneven application of what a mercenary is in international law and how it can, you know, be used for political ends, um, which is quite quite interesting. But I think, you know, even though we report on them now, they still are, you know, a very brutal mercenary group. You do have to be careful trying to, you know, take out all their dirty laundry because you don't know what they could do. Um, we kind of touched on it a little bit there. Um how has the international community responded to Wagner? Is it different to how we respond to other PMCs around the world? I think I think it is quite different. I mean, we touched on Blackwater. And there's a few, um, there's I forget their names, but there are Wagner is the most like popular Russian private military company, but there are other ones floating around mm. as well. Um Shoigu's got his own, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. And I think the problem, I don't want to say the problem with society, but the problem with the international community is obviously everyone is, no one's immune to propaganda. Everyone, you know, can be victim to a kind of shock factor, right? So if someone keeps waving something in front of your face, you're going to be drawn to that thing. And I think exactly that's what's kind of happened with Wagner. Obviously, they've done terrible things um, and that's like indisputable. But there are very, there's like heaps of other private military companies that we probably don't even know about yet that are doing exactly the same thing. They've just been better on the PR front. Um, like look at Blackwater. They've made a comeback after everything they've done in the past. And, you know, the US kind of waves them around and say, oh, we're reformed. And it is, it's, you know, who makes the laws um, can also make sure that they're not charged by the law. And that's obviously everyone knows the problem with the UN. It's so ineffective. I think um, there was in, I think it was like 2019 or even 2020, um, the UN tried to like uh, make an investigation into Wagner's or like Russian forces, human rights abuses in the Central African Republic and Russia just barred that. They vetoed it at the UN. So that it shows how, you know, 
it's just basically it's a void kind of institution and it really needs to be reformed but it, yeah that's another bag of worms i think we could do an entire season on the failures of the un yeah exactly it's just yeah wagner is like a huge marker of that also the failure and we respect borders um but it's like you know, jihadists aren't respecting borders. Wagner's not respecting borders. But if a country who does have a fighting force who is, you know, trying to do something for the best interests of the country that Wagner's in, um, it makes it tricky. Obviously, a lot of Africa does not trust these Western countries anymore. That's something that's been super, super clear in the past few months. Um, so going forward, obviously, we don't know what the future of Wagner is in Africa or, you know, they're not really in Ukraine anymore. But um, however, you know, the future when it comes and what the kind of next moves is for Wagner there. It'll be interesting to see how the international community tries to tackle it, especially it's like front page news. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got to ride that PR wave, I guess. Try, try spare on some action. I can imagine it's a situation that will get worse before it gets better. Oh yeah, 100%. And that's something that I think is also quite interesting into looking at like Russian domestic politics. Um, it's, it's almost similar to how the third Reich there was, you had your German kind of police force, which still works, still operated. If you're a German civilian and you did something wrong, you'd still go through the normal criminal justice system. But there was a very, it was very difficult to resolve elite disputes in the third Reich and there was like a lot of killings you know they went to Hitler and they're like oh what do we do do we that that's very similar to what happens in Russia today and that's also something that happens to go and show you um is hey you're in Russia you're a normal Russian citizen you commit a crime you drunk drive whatever you're going to go through the normal Russian justice system however that may be but when you're an elite it makes it very difficult to you know kind of resolve any kind of dispute you have with someone someone in the military apparatus someone in like some other governmental apparatus because you're all kind of vying for the support of putin or the support of your finances um and that's also why going to come in the future with wagner is going to be so complex because it obviously was a huge turning point um and showing you know someone who putin really thought was his like bro i guess if i can use that word um yeah you know things can wind up completely differently and i think obviously there's a lot of analysts who's looked at it and been like this just shows like you know support for putin and support for the internal network for the kremlin is crumbling i don't think that's exactly true i just think it's the result and a huge item down on you know who putin keeps around and how he then chooses to carry out his foreign policy in other countries i think would be like a very um shocking thing in a way and you'd you'd you know tighten down the hatches and try and try and keep who you think you trust closest to you mm. i think it's a great comparison um it makes it a lot easier when your state is built on corruption to just not have trials of important people because it can just bring the whole system down but easier to throw out a window yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and that's that's i think also in itself obviously it's a negative thing because that breeds so much distrust among elites who are meant to be working together because obviously you you can have somewhat like a functioning corporation um if there's some level of distrust but if the distrust is so strong that like 
you're thinking you're going to work every day thinking oh my god if i mess up i might get shot out of the sky with a file while i'm trying to fly to somewhere i think you know you could start reevaluating who you're keeping around in your circles what you, what your future career might look like you go it's a tricky one yeah. i just i think it's with the whole plane situation, I know we'll go into it again, like more in a minute. I wouldn't risk getting on something that high up over Russia if I was him. I think it's absolutely insane. Opsec. Yeah, exactly. I think I'm on for their own death, but um, I think this case goes, and it was. I think he felt as though he had some pretty out of himself um and like thus far even with his like online little spats with shogu and other military elites he hadn't really faced any kind of consequences and i think everyone thought after they tried to march from moscow that you know he'd just be killed on the spot obviously even seen wagner um everyone thought like he'd be in some bunker getting like tortured or something i think for him to show face in africa i think that was a really shocking thing for the world and journalists and analysts um but i think i mean like, the way putin kind of dealt with it there was there was something hectic and i think it definitely sent a message um and it will keep you know the boys in line for the near future <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't imagine anyone else is going to step out too quickly. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Mm. So let's wind back a little bit. What are we touched on the Buka massacres already? What are some of the other notable incidents that Wagner have been involved in so far of the invasion? Okay, yeah, Buka massacre, that was... Um... I think the Buka massacre was something that really sh was something shocking towards the start of the war. Um, obviously, you know, it is an active war zone, but I think the general population or people who, like civilians who follow this conflict, I think, you know, after the atrocities of World War II, they genuinely, generally think, especially in like a theatre like Europe, that people are going to stick to rules of engagement. And I think it was so shocking. I think it was German intelligence who uncovered this, um, but it wasn't, obviously it's it's still bad if anyone dies through torture, but it wasn't just adults. There were kids as well. I think, yeah, 419 people, actually, um, you know, showing signs of torture rape. That's something that is really common in Wagner's tactics in Africa, but I think the most shocking thing, obviously, for the average European is going, this is happening in, you know, Europe's, backyard i think it's not something that's people have been used to especially in like kind of this era i'm not counting the 90s but yeah i think yeah it, it was something quite shocking and obviously they also took back moot and soldar um again that's another thing that leads into kind of disputes with the russian military elite because wagner claimed that wagner took those cities um and then again russian um, forces said no we took the cities and I think that's something also that kind of stood on that fire of not not feeling as though you're being rewarded for the effort you're putting into such an assault or victories kind of do you you know you're somewhat fighting for this and I felt I, I think that's something that provoking the felt as though like 
he was not getting properly rewarded for the work he was doing, which also came out after his ammunition stores started drying up. Um, but no, it's it's very interesting, and I think I mentioned this earlier. I may have not, but wait, there's internal discipline structure as well. Um, not just events in the war, like games made in the war, but kind of things that we've seen come out of that war, such as, you know, that sledgehammer kind of discipline. Um, I'm pretty sure what happened was a video got released on Telegram, on a Wagner-affiliated Telegram channel, and they said that this is Wagner, um, he tried to desert the Ukraine or tried to leave the fighting and they basically duct taped his head to a brick and smashed it with a sledgehammer. Um, and also that's something obviously to instill fear in other um, WAG members, but also to just kind of prop up the kind of notoriety that Wagner has on the international stage, which again is like a, a PR thing. Wagner's very good at, you know, the propaganda. Um, but no, it's it's a hectic thing that they do. Yeah, it was. I watched it with like my eyes behind my fingers, <laughs> and I was like, I really don't do gore or anything like that, especially when it's so torture. Any of that, I know that's like actually a really normal thing to be kind of put off by, but it's yeah, not for me. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it does send a message, and I think we've seen obviously in recent months the Wagner, the Russian military, the fond of sending messages but it also adds to that notoriety but then again like even after that video it's not like the international community was wasn't was going to do anything because you know they were doing something to their own member um but then you get reports you know coming out of africa and they're doing this to civilians and there's still no really any international move to do something mm. that leads me perfectly to my next question when you compare Wagner in Ukraine to Wagner in Africa. Are they two sides of the same coin or are they two distinct things? I think they're quite distinct. And as I said earlier, um, Wagner in Ukraine, they obviously they were not thinking that they would be there for long, that they had their, their groups, they were highly trained, they thought it would kind of be one and done thing, they'd capture all these cities and be easy going, and then they could go back to Africa to where you know, they were more needed. Um, with the kind of churning on in the war in Ukraine, that obviously they saw that, one, they were lacking in manpower, and one, they didn't expect, I think obviously most of the world didn't expect that huge surge in, like, Ukrainian nationalist spirit, which obviously spurred on a lot of people to join the armies, and just basically it was harder to um, attack these these cities or these villages because you know the average populace were putting up defensive um like fortifications and i think in ukraine they really stick to those as i mentioned like human wave assaults because i've got that disciplinary structure where if you try and desert you're going to get shot if you try and like walk away from assault not desert but like try and capture or uh, try to help a wounded friend like a wounded wagner officer you're going to get shot anyway but the thing about these human waves assault, which is quite smart on the wagon end, is these, in these assaults, it's normally infantrymen, it's normally those that they recruited from the prisons, like actually taking part in the assault, but the main kind of crux of a unit, like the commander, any, um, like the machinery operators or like business operators, they 
aren't used in the insult so they can like you know carry on they can jump from unit to unit so the actual important crux of the unit stays and normally is kept alive and kind of the expendable the you know those that they send to the meat grinder they don't really care it's kind of like the same strategy um stalin had in world war ii you know like i can have 10 untrained russians to it's basically the same thing um and that just leads to a bunch of losses but again the importance of wagner in this war is because mercenary companies or like military companies aren't legal in russia all these deaths are not reported on russian like armed forces they're not counted as part of the Russian armed forces. So one thing that is good, Russia can kind of keep the domestic populace happy by showing them lower death counts and not doing a full Russian mobilization. Um, and also, you know, sending these bunch of people to the meat grinder who sometimes are able to overrun Ukrainian positions, but only after like hundreds of losses. Um, but in Africa, they tend, Wagner tends to be more highly trained. The, the units smaller they're more highly trained and they have their um objective is more outlined like obviously in ukraine everyone's kind of like what is russia actually up to they're kind of just holding ground they grab something then they lose it then they grab it again um they've kind of got a bit of a iffy, iffy objective there but um yeah in africa i definitely think that their objective is more clear they have more of a guideline of what their kind of rules are engaged with because they've seen that they're not really going to get much slack for, for you know attacking the civilian population but also like in africa they're they're effective sometimes and ineffective sometimes as well in mali and like cabo delgado wagner has really struggled to fight like islamic insurgents i think a lot of it comes down to not being willing to adapt to the new environment they're fighting in and not willing to cooperate with local forces either um obviously in mozambique and the cabo delgado they've out just because they'll give the asses handed to them. Um, Mali, there's so many, so many instances of civilian, like, brut- brutality on civilians in Mali. And the Malian government has actually blocked inquiries into any of these killings. Um, and obviously in the Central African Republic, again, they've got a bunch of, a bunch of cases where they've attacked civilians Um but no, it's the tactics. I think are more set out. They have a, a more outlined structure of what they're actually doing in these African countries because it's, it's almost like a playbook. Like Russia has been kind of using these disinformation campaigns, propping up governments of these African countries for years since the Cold War. They're more they kind of know what they're doing there. Um, mm. Obviously, in Ukraine, whole different ballpark. They're still, I think, you know, they're just in the media. Yeah. And. The last two questions. Mm-hmm. So following on from kind of Wagner's withdrawal from key positions in Ukraine through all the Belarus arc with Prigozhin there to the, to the infamous plane crash that we've mentioned, what's next for Wagner? Is it dead? I think that's a good question, actually. I think... I think obviously only the future can tell us, but I think most, I think a lot of people in the Russian, like in the Kremlin, they know that Wagner itself has been, it's a phenomenon in itself. There's not many private military companies who have had such far a reach across the globe, who have accomplished as many things as they've done, have, you know, 
um, evaded any type of really international, um, like, criminal prosecution. Um, and I think, hopefully, well, obviously, I'm not going to say hopefully. I think even the criminal, um, if they realise that that itself, that phenomenon, is something that is not common and is something important, obviously, to the Kremlin's foreign policy goals, they might work to try and salvage it. I think, obviously, um, some people might have read that before Prigozhin died, he found out that Russia was trying to incorporate Wagner into the Russian armed forces. Um, I think that Russia would be silly to try and do that. I think adding, you know, these, if there's any left of them, highly trained Wagner mercenaries who have been in multiple theatres across the globe have really specialised skills um, to kind of just dissolve them into what we've seen as a somewhat ineffective fighting force is going to lower their chances of kind of fulfilling any type of foreign policy goal that they have, especially in Africa. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see what happens. I think especially it's important now to follow along what could happen in Africa. I mean, a lot of things are going on there at the moment, but to have Wagner completely disappear would obviously completely basically cut off an arm of Russian foreign policy force in the continent, um, which obviously would be a really good thing for those Western countries. But I think um, the Kremlin isn't that stupid, if I can say that. I think they kind of realise that it, it is a really important foreign policy tool. They might remake it in a new image and they might, you know, place people who Putin really does have on a leash um, and try and reenact the same thing. But I think that's what made Wagner Wagner was having this kind of like flamboyant pre goes and having goes at people on the internet. Um, so, you know, whatever comes along after Wagner obviously isn't going to have the same pizzazz, but I think it'll be, it'll be something similar just on a tighter, tighter leash for sure. <laughs> And then a similar question, but slightly broader. How do you foresee the future role of PMCs in conflicts? Is it going to boom? I, th I think I think it can take two routes. Either it'll boom, but I think the international community now is becoming aware of like the type of damage that these private military companies can wreak. And that's also something in Russia. Wagner itself was just a show that the Kremlin had lost its monopoly on violence in Russia itself and across the globe. Um, and obviously with like autocratic, dictatorial regimes, you don't want to lose that monopoly on violence. That's what really keeps you in power. Um, so any smart government, I think, would try and rein them in. Or you've got maybe a more kind of out there government who sees that they can be really useful. But again, you have to keep them on a tight leash. I think in any future conflict, either heaps of countries will realise that they're quite useful and instead of sending, you know, the regular armed forces in, they'll just go, oh, we'll do PMC for PMC and have all these people fighting each other. Um, or they're going to see that it's crazy. They can lose power from it. They can obviously go rogue and try and march on the capital. So it is, you know, it all depends on what the state's own ideology is what is the main objective of the leader of that country most likely i think that they are going to want to rein in these pmcs they can see the damage that they wreak and obviously for western countries they're all about having a good image in the world um 
So I think having some PMC doing whack shit and having it directly connected to your country's name is not a good look um, for anything, you know, trying to have a bilateral agreement with someone while, you know, you have some shady PMC of yours like operating in their back rooms. It's not, it's not easy. <laughs> Every year that goes by, I think we've privatised warfare as much as we can. Every year I'm surprised. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's something, it's intense. I think that's also something that obviously being in this generation, I think we're still yet to see, but the absolute technological advances in warfare that we've made, the different theatres in warfare that we're seeing, um, and like the different tactics that I use, I think, you know, in 50 years even, the type of war that is conducted is going to be so far out of the grasp of anyone who ever witnessed it anyone who ever witnessed World War II, they're just going to think, obviously Ukraine's still like, it's kind of on a middle ground. They obviously use kind of somewhat traditional tactics, but like drone warfare, it's something, yeah, building for something really crazy. And the like mass casualties that can be inflicted from the new types of weapons that we have, I think is something we really have to be careful with. Mm-hmm. Um, been shown time and time again that you know in a, in a war setting people really have no regard for human life but i think as we're seeing now it's like even climate change disasters human life can be taken so easily and i think that's something that needs to be more kind of cherished and in, in any kind of setting but yeah it's crazy that's also sorry can i just say another thing speaking on these technological something that has really like something I've noticed and I don't enjoy it at all as you see especially Instagram pages telegram pages the war in Ukraine has almost become a spectator sport you can go on Instagram and watch a drone drop a bomb on a Russian foxhole and the comments are all like oh Ukraine doesn't it and we get it it is a war but I think still that really there is a disconnect because of that technological advance because you can see it through your phone screen while you're sitting in a country where you're millions of miles away from this war I think it's it's something it's a very weird phenomenon and I think people need to keep an eye on that because it's yeah there is a cognitive disconnect there and it is strange Hmm. I've said it on multiple episodes of this podcast so far. It disgusts me how often I watch people die. Yeah, 100%. And, like, without even looking for it, it's there, like, easily. It's terrifying. Yeah, exactly. I think that is definitely something that people aren't so much aware of it is a type of desensitization um you know you can you can go and google ukrainian war footage now see someone get like blown out of the sky um and obviously if you look at the comments i think the comments are the most concerning where people are most of the time both of the people making those comments are sitting on sides of the world that have never seen what an actual war is like um and it is comes a spectator sport it's like gladiators and i think yeah it is quite disgusting um, and it's definitely something, you know, the international community look and obviously you can't stop the advances of technology, but I think the effect that it has on the human brain is not normal and more people need to be aware of it. Mm. And I think that's a brilliant place for us to finish. Um, fantastic. Yeah, it's been an honour to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you. Uh, is there actually is there anything you'd like to promote or anything like that? If not, no worries. Yeah, nah, not really. Yeah. <laughs>
most of our writers have just kind of shouted out TMI and I'm like people kind of if people are listening to the podcast they already know TMI <laughs> all right the modern insurgent is your impartial independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries podcasts reports and scholarly articles reporting on the underreported <laughs>